Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. That's the second time it's gone off. Never go home. They never go home. They never go home. Those 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 boys. That's yeah. They have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm the walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. It's here at last, November 9th, 2015 means a worldwide release of Ronaldo the movie. Is it even called Ronaldo the movie? It's just called Ronaldo. Ronaldo. Astonishing, intimate, definitive. <laughs> I'm not sure which of those qualities I'm looking know. forward to seeing most. Uh, uh, are they on? Is that on the poster? Yeah. Oh, what the, those words? Yeah. 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 I actually saw a, a, a movie poster recently w- with really gushing remarks on it. You know, and I was like, "That's interesting." I haven't really read any good reviews of that movie, and then I looked a little closer at the poster the next time I walked past it. And it was actually just tweets said by random people, <laughs> which I'd never seen before. That I mean, that is extraordinary. So, I mean, I can only presume that some Real Madrid fans have, or maybe these are respected uh, reviewers. I, I'm, I'm not to know. I did read Barney Roney in the Guardian though, and was Barney Roney or Daniel Taylor? Daniel Taylor. Sorry, yes, it was Daniel Taylor. Yeah, and he, he wasn't quite as impressed. Well, you know those that. Almost cliche, almost cliche. It is a cliche of a radio ad where it's an ad for a movie, and they've got these people coming out. Mm. Uh, I don't know if these people are paid for their time or not, but they come out gushing in praise of the movie they've just seen. But it's always the same banal. Yes, great movie, definitely worth ninety minutes of your time. <laughs> I'm going to need something a little bit more yeah. uh, more extravagant. Oh, than that. I, can't wait. I should have said, "Oh, Murph and Ken, all here for today's Irish Time Second Captain's podcast." Hi, guys. Good. Hey there. Let's get straight into the report on sport, Ken. Yeah, because I know you're going to talk about Ronaldo straight up. Well, yeah, because I I read um, there's also been a a book about Ronaldo oh, yeah. published in the last couple of days, and this is by Guillaume Balaguer, who you might remember Owen wrote an authorized biography of Lionel Messi, which was out a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. and has now written an unauthorized biography. Couldn't get the couldn't get the sign off from Ronaldo and George Mendes. No, no. <laughs> Um, so, so in a way, it's, I suppose it's an, it's an interesting companion piece to this um, ultra-authorised movie, <laughs> which has been released by Ronaldo's personal propaganda. Well, it's, it's unfair to say that, because Ronaldo has, as in keeping with his status as, you know, the top player in the world, it has enlisted some of the top filmmakers. Uh, Steve Capadia is on board with the project, executive producer, not, a, not the director as he was previously with the Amy and Senna movies. But, you know, definitely a strong name to be associated with if you're, if you're releasing a movie. Yep. I'm not suggesting that the movie is just some kind of, you know, PR video. No. However, it, it does, uh, I guess, present the image of Ronaldo that Ronaldo wants to present. Whereas Guillaume Balaguer, the advantage of not getting Ronaldo on board with the project is that he's able to present a version of Ronaldo which isn't necessarily the one that he wants to see presented. I mean, the book starts off by talking about how uh, yeah, there was this big uh, controversy. Uh, he, oh, an explosive controversy over the previous book that Guillaume Balaguer had written, in which he revealed that Cristiano Ronaldo referred to Lionel Messi using an epithet, which on ITV 20 years ago 
would have been redubbed into the soundtrack as Melon Farmer. Now, this didn't cause any problems when the book was actually published at the time, but at some point it came to Ronaldo's attention, and Ronaldo blasted the uh, allegation in a Facebook post to his, you know, 75,000 billion uh, followers, causing, um, you know, almost a personal crisis in the life of Guillaume Balaguer, who wandered, I think, alone on the moors. Uh, he was somehow in the English countryside, the Peak, Peak District, maybe. Uh, he seems to take breaks when the inter it seems like little holidays when the international break is on. I was like, that's a, such a great idea. Whenever the international break is on, Guillaume Balaguer goes off to, you know, the mountains or wherever, mm. and he refreshes himself. I thought, that's, you know, well, you were I haven't steps seen you, off the treadmill. Yeah, I haven't seen you this impressed with somebody's ability to compartmentalise their life, Ken, since the IFTA Awards a couple of weeks ago when Brendan O'Connor was the... Oh, yeah. He of Mrs. Brown's Boys fame, of course, was the... Brendan O'Carroll. Brendan oh O'Carroll. Not Brendan O'Connor. Not Brendan O'Connor. Brendan O'Carroll was the Hall of Fame Award <laughs> recipient yeah. and revealed his amazing ability to separate his work life and his... Family life. Yeah, 26 weeks on, 26 weeks off. <laughs> so almost like a crab fisherman's um, mm. schedule, except for that a crab fisherman maybe is more like 26 weeks on, two weeks off, 26 weeks on, and so on. So he takes half the year off uh, just completely and, you know, lives his life. Has done before he started making the millions, apparently. He's yeah. Had, for quite a long time. Told his, told his wife that's the way it was going to be. She was agreeable. And since then, that's what they've been doing. Um, in the case of Guillaume Balgay, it appears that he doesn't necessarily take too much of an interest in international football. Uh, and why not take a little bit of a... Anyway, he was wa he's wandering alone on the moors, thinking about how he's suddenly become pretty much the centre of the universe after Ronaldo has called him out on Facebook hmm. for publishing lies. You know, but it, what follows is a rumination on, well, of course, you know, I, I, I believe that what I reported was true. You know, the sources tell you certain things... There's something sources tell you that you can't mention. There's, there's a kind of a meditation on the nature of journalistic truth. It's not never the full truth, you know, but that's journalism. You know what I'm saying? Uh, and then, then an account of, of, how, of, his, of his negotiation with George Mendes. Mendes is like, hey, you know, I, I hear that you're a good guy. People tell me you're a good guy. But, you know, I'd like to work with you on this, but I don't know what you're going to write. You know, what do you, you know, so, so this goes on for a while. And uh, Mendes is like, hey, you know, you seem like a really great guy, but you can't screw me on this. You know, I'm prepared to, I'm prepared to work with you. I'm prepared to help you on this, but you can't screw us on this. And uh, anyway, it turns out that in the end, didn't work out. No. So he's kind of like, well, it's much better to be able to write an unauthorized biography. Yeah. I would be broadly in agreement with that, though. I mean, the autobiography now is... You know, it's 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 not a it's not a totally devalued brand, but I mean, I think we've all read a lot of very bad. You've got one on the things. table in front of you there, uh, Kieran. Can you guess? <laughs> Can you guess which? I'm going to read oh. the quote on the back of this. Oh yeah, which we're now currently using as a microphone stand. Now this is not a review quote. This is a quote no, from the from person, the from the subject of the book. My job was to make everyone understand that the impossible was possible. That's the difference between leadership. And management. Alex Ferguson leading. Yes, yes, yes on correct. And I'm, I, I, and this book. I, I, is, I am only looking at the back of the book, but that's that's an Alex Ferguson is, leading quote. Yeah, this uh, book is serving. It's it's of more use to me now, uh, holding my uh, as a stand for my microphone than it could possibly be to anyone else. This is the high, the pinnacle of this book's usefulness on the planet. <laughs> Using it to increase the height of that microphone by two inches. Yeah. Um, well, you know, so so. You're thinking, okay, okay, unauthorized take. It was different from the messy one that was authorized. This one's unauthorized. But then he goes to Madeira, and, and there's, there's kind of a lot about the Portuguese navigators discovering Madeira. And you're thinking, this is interesting. But at the same time, does it suggest that Guillaume didn't find out a lot about Ronaldo when he went to Madeira? I'm reading about these Portuguese navigators and how they glimpsed this, you know, cloud formation over the horizon and eventually ended up on this strange island. I think to myself, you know... Well, Ken, you are a pro to the odd flight of fancy in your 800-word columns for the Irish Times. Look, so, I mean, if you're writing a book <laughs> about something, I would say there's a little bit of leeway there. That's He gets down to it, but it turns out people in Madeira don't really want to talk about Ronaldo. He's mm -hmm. kind of left that world behind. He's, I mean, he left it when he was 12. And uh, he's, he's been on this journey to the top of his profession. I mean, a few things kind of stand out about it. Number one is how Ronaldo pretty much seems to have been telling everyone since he was about 12 that he's going to be the best player in the world. Not just 
I'm going to be a player, or I think I'm quite a good player, but I am going to be the best player in the world. This has like been a kind of a constant thing that he's been saying, telling people, telling everyone he works with. You know, not, not a problem with telling them that. And uh, that's that's been his kind of goal. So there's some interesting stuff in it from, say, Mike Clegg, who's one of the, he was a conditioning coach at Man United and kind of worked very closely with Ronaldo, it turns out. He would sit there in the gym, apparently. You know, the players, the, the mountains would have to come to Mohammed. And uh, pretty much day one, Ronaldo walks in. He's like, yeah, listen, um, I basically am going to be the best player in the world. So you're going to have to help me with that, if you, if you wouldn't mind. Mike is like, good attitude, you know, mm-hmm. think I've got something to work with here. Um, so, you know, there's this, you, you get, obviously, there's nothing from Ronaldo himself, but a couple of little mix zone moments, you know, because he talked to Guillaume Balaguer in the mix zone because he recognizes him from TV. Balaguer says, well, if you're on, you know, if you're on TV for like a few years and players, introductions aren't even necessary to an extent with the players. Okay. <laughs> um, but, you know, he, um, what I, what I kind of got from this was that it's sort of a pity that Ronaldo went to Real Madrid. I honestly think that. I think he would have been better off. A pity for who? For Ronaldo. Really? Yeah. I think I think he would have been better off. I think his life would have taken a better course if he had stayed with Man United. What would you feel is wrong with the course that it has taken for the multi Ballon d'Or winner? It's so... well. Arguably, it's, arguably best footballer. For instance, just what you say there. Multi Ballon d'Or winner. It's not really the point of this but it is the point the way Ronaldo sees it now winning those individual awards is like what he actually exists for but that's always what he existed for if you're saying that from the age of 12 he was telling everyone this is what he was going to do yeah well that is what he was going to that is what he, he's telling people he's going to be the best player in the world but I think that's a little bit different from saying I'm going to win more Ballon d'Ors than anyone else um, to be the best player in the world the Ballon d'Or is something is, is like a minor detail of the life of the, being the best player in the world oh I won the Ballon d'Or but it's it's not like it's it's like an irrelevant thing. It's just like a a little ribbon that's you know stuck on your jacket. Like it's not a big deal, really. It, it doesn't have any real relevance. The important thing is what you actually do on the field. You know the, the trophies that you win. I mean, the the goals that you score. Now that's something that Ronaldo has has done. Like, I mean, it's it's stupendous what he has done in sporting terms. It's stupendous. So what do you think he would have gotten out of life? What do you think he would have achieved at Manchester United over the last few years? that would have been more beneficial to Cristiano Ronaldo in his life than what he's achieved? I think it was a healthier setup for him uh, psychologically to be at Manchester United, where he was kind of more integrated into a squad who seemed to have a huge amount of respect for him, but also were prepared to kind of laugh at him over his stupid clothes and, you know, his obvious self-love, uh, you know, to you know, in this kind of... Oh, and I suppose the word I'm looking for here is banter. Right? <laughs> I think there was a bit of... You should have stayed at Man United because banter. Well, that you know, I mean, I, it doesn't sound great when you put it like that. It doesn't sound great when you put it like that. But, you know, he... I just... It just sounds... There was just so much less bullshit surrounding the whole thing. When he went to Real Madrid, it's like he's he scored 50 goals a season, more than 50 goals, in five consecutive seasons. I mean, like, it's amazing. Right? It's, 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 it's beyond belief. And... This is almost like a substrand of the story. The story is all about, well, you know, Florentino Perez, of course, he was signed by Calderon, and the fans weren't really sure about Ronaldo. Is he maybe the way that he points to himself when he scores a goal and his contract renewal and Mendez's plan of like, oh, you know, maybe we're going to put out a message there. Like he, he appears in the front page of this, or the, the cover of this autobiography wearing a red shirt. Why is he wearing a red T-shirt? Well, what are we supposed to understand by the fact that he's wearing a red T-shirt? And not a white t-shirt. It's not like Ronaldo never wears a white t-shirt, but for some reason, when he does the cover of this book, he puts on a red t-shirt. What's he trying to tell us? You know, this bullshit. This is literally what you, what you end up thinking. Like, oh, the leadership group, the captains at Real Madrid, Sergio Ramos and Iker Casillas. Oh, they weren't sure, you know, should Ronaldo be in our leadership group? You're like, he scores 50 goals a season. He is, he, that, at Manchester United, that would have been enough to be the leadership group. You score 50 goals, do that every season, you're gonna run the, run, run the club, right? <laughs> people are gonna, people are gonna make uh, make space for you on the leadership, the top leadership table. Mm. You know what I mean? Instead of this, oh, having to go to dinner with Sergio Ramos and Iker Casillas and like discuss things. Or Jose Mourinho didn't really get on with him, but then Jose Mourinho, a, a peace was brokered by Mendes because Mendes is also the agent of Mourinho. 
a piece was broken when Mourinho selected Ronaldo in his top 11 players of all time. And you're like, are you serious? Like, I can't believe this, is, this kind of bullshit is even a factor in the story of this great player. You know what I mean? He's a, it's, it's like this trivia but has you're, almost yeah. choked off the, like, this, this, the... I don't know if it has, though. You're, you're implying that, the, that Ronaldo is in some way striving for the acceptance of his teammates and his managers... Well, he, well, I'm, not, mean, I'm not sure that he necessarily is doing that at all. I, I th- he certainly wants a claim, all right, mm. but I don't know if he cares that much uh, whether or not his teammates view him as the leader of the uh, of the team. He views himself as the leader of the team. Uh, that's the main I point. think I think that does matter to him. I mean, I don't know if he necessarily wants to be liked or accepted by his team. You know, I mean, apparently he doesn't really hang out with them much. You know, they, uh, you know, he had that party like his thirtieth. Uh, and he got in trouble because one of the one of the singers at the party posted a video of Ronaldo like drinking a glass of champagne at the party and singing, and they just lost the game. You know, uh, mm-hmm. they lost Atletico, I think. And uh, but most of the players didn't go to the party. You know what I mean? Like it's not he doesn't seem to be socially. You know, obviously he's total contempt for Bale. You know, he doesn't like Bale at all. Um, and there's there's you know he, he's not an easy teammate, but I think at Manchester United it was just a, a healthier setup. I mean. It, would that not have more to do with the fact that the full Ronaldo that we see before us now and all the narcissi- narcissism and all the rest that comes with it wasn't fully developed yeah. in Manchester in that if Ronaldo as a teammate at the age of 28, regardless of where he was, or 29 or 30 or whatever, is always going to be... He was always going to behave like that regardless of how of where he was. That may well be true. I mean, you know, because he only kind of became this utter, like his first year of total superstardom was his second last season at Manchester United when he won the Ballon d'Or for the first time. And he, since then, has kind of gone up and up and up and up. Um, So maybe if he'd stayed at Manchester United, it would have gone the same way. I don't know. But it just seems as though for somebody like him, who emotionally is... He's not a secure person. I mean, he, you know, he's he's there's a this, that level of ambition is a kind of a, is a form of craziness. It's a form of madness. I mean, uh, Balge talks in the book about the fact that Ronaldo's father had a had a problem with alcohol. He died quite young because uh, he drank too much. Uh, his brother had a problem with drugs, and he kind of draws a a comparison between the addictive personalities of the three. Guys, except the thing that Ronaldo was addicted to was like lifting weights and training, you know what I mean, as opposed to booze or drugs. Um, I mean, he, you know, you know, whether you believe that, who knows? It's, it's a lot of it is speculation. I mean, he talks about how, why, why, how did Ronaldo get this way? You know, what, what makes a guy go? And he talks about like the childhood, dads down the bar drinking all the time, the mother's got three other kids working, trying to, you know, doesn't have much time. Ronaldo, little Ronaldo's running around the island playing football. 10, 12 hours a day, you know? He's like a kid from a normal sort of, you know, a kind of a more conventional family where the parents were around a lot more, might be allowed out for two hours, you know? Or the, but, but he was literally running, running right and, you know. But, like, there's lots of kids who grow up in families like that. You know what I mean? And it's not... There's like, lots of kids who grow up in conventional families and still find the time to play 10 hours 10 of football a day. Hours. <laughs> uh, you know, so I don't really find that particularly persuasive as an explanation of why Ronaldo is like this... This monster of yeah. uh, of self improvement and advancement. I mean, there, there's a couple of things I don't particularly like about the book, and one of the one of the problems is uh, is like uh, it's similar to that Hugo Borst book about Louis Van Gaal, where for some reason uh, Guillaume Balaguer goes to speak to a couple of like psychologists. Oh, what's your view on this? What's your take on this? Various aspects of the personality, and these psychologists are like pontificating from afar. You know, not based on any actual interaction with Ronaldo, really. Maybe they've looked at a few clips of him on, on YouTube and stuff, you know? I don't see the purpose of that. Mm. I mean, I don't think there's anything wrong with, with that kind of speculation in and of itself. But I think Ian Balgate, or the writer, should do it himself. Use your own imagination. Don't hide behind some psychologist who probably shouldn't be doing this. At least, you know, uh, you know. Well, while, maybe they shouldn't be, but they're always. A, a, anytime anything happens with a player, you see Sky Sports News or somebody will have a. You get these mouthy, publicity hungry type of of professionals, but they shouldn't really, or you shouldn't take the fact that they're supposedly qualified as a psychologist as like, oh, lending increased worth to their opinion. It's just an opinion, like a speculative opinion, like anyone else's. So I think that that lends a kind of spurious veneer of clinical respectability 
to some of these speculations, which would be no less interesting or credible if Balgay was just to make them himself. You know what I mean? Because to a large extent, that's the job of a writer, especially if you're doing an unauthorized biography. You know what I mean? A lot of it is your impressions. Like, give your impressions. Don't, don't, I don't, I don't want to hear what some psychologist thinks. When I, when I see the word psychologist in this context, I think, this guy shouldn't be doing this. You know what I mean? This guy should not be lending his professional credibility to this, yeah, to, the, to this analysis. But, not that I have a problem with it, you know, in itself. Meanwhile, Barcelona are trucking along nicely. Well, this is the, this is the the contrast. I mean, maybe if he just gone to Barcelona instead of instead of Real Madrid, it's just, Real Madrid is so kind of unstable, like such a sort of circus, so much so much nonsense going on. I mean, Barcelona throughout this whole time. I mean, this is this is the disappointing thing. Ronaldo really is fixated on the Ballon d'Or as like the measure of his worth. He's not he's not going to be able to catch Lionel Messi. It's going to be five three at the end of this year. Mm. It's going to be five three in January, and Ronaldo can't catch up now because he's going to be 31 in February and it's not going to happen. So it's a pity if that's the way that he is looking at it. But what's what's striking when you compare himself and Messi is the different ways in which they're treated by their team and obviously by the fans. I mean, at Real Madrid, the fans are always like, oh, this guy, we're not even really sure about this guy. And you're like, Real Madrid, like, seriously. Real Madrid fans should, in my opinion, give him more respect. Although he is maybe, his egotistical behavior does... It is off-putting to, to people sometimes, but in, in within the team itself, um, it's the, just the level of support that Lionel Messi gets from his teammates is just so much, so much greater. You know, Ronaldo, there's always these rivalries, and oh, people aren't really sure, and there's all people are always saying stuff. And um, at Barcelona, it's like he's the best. We're just here to help. And and, and the people who are saying this are like Luis Suarez and Neymar. You know, at the moment they're on this amazing run of form. Lionel Messi's been injured for a few weeks, and you know, Neymar and Suarez are playing incredible football. Um, Just, yeah, but in relation to that, though, I mean, it's not like Gareth Bale is stabbing Ronaldo in the back. You know, it's not like Gareth Bale is being a bad teammate to Ronaldo. Bale is, you know, be treated by treated with contempt by Ronaldo, and he's kind of standing there taking it and not really giving out about Ronaldo. Unsure what to do. Like. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, the, the, the point is obviously well met. It is uh, very interesting to see how... Neymar and Suarez are still completely, you know, we're good, but this guy's totally different level. But at the same time, Bale, you know, Bale would say that if, you know, if Ronaldo, if if Bale was asked in a situation like that, he might say that if Ronaldo wasn't treating him so open, openly, contemptuously, that it would make him look ridiculous and weak to do it. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, he he might do that. I mean, Bale, I think, always is, is you know, he, he's quite he praises Ronaldo whenever he's asked about him, I guess. Uh, and, he, and he does get treated like dirt in return. Ronaldo <laughs> just didn't think he's any good. Um, and it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's a totally dysfunctional setup, really. But, you know, I'm, uh, there's things that come out about Ronaldo which can only have come from teammates. You know what I mean? Teammates who are obviously complaining yeah. about him. You know what I mean? Um, I mean, at the, at the moment, I mean, uh, you know, there's this interesting sort of transformation taking place in his, in his game, you know, where he's like, he's become... He, he's kind of slowing down, you know what I mean? Uh, and Balgay does get onto this. I mean, there is there is a bit about football, thankfully, in this in this book. It's not just all about oh, and then Mendes Mendes was considering what to do next in this you know game of poker with Fiorentino Perez. Um, there's also talk about his uh, how his game is getting more and more pared down, you know. And I, and I was thinking of the Atletico final, um, you know, the the one last year where he wasn't really fit. Anyway, he kind of had a problem with his patellar tendon. He has tendonitis. It's increasingly a problem that he has. Uh, but he's obviously going to play in that match because he's... I can't miss this match. Mm. So he was like a crocodile in the match. You know, he was like a kind of... You know the way this crocodile kind of sits there and sits there and has a little rush. He's capable of a little rush every, like... Well, in the case of a crocodile, a couple of weeks. But in the case of... You know, it, he didn't look like a... Um, can you tell there's a new David Attenborough series on it? Yeah. <laughs> it sounds like Leo Messi at a World Cup, actually. Uh, Gareth Bale reminds me of a polar bear uh, <laughs> walking down a sea cliff trying to eat eggs out of the nest of Guillemot. <laughs> now, um, uh, where are we talking about? Suarez well, and Neymar. Yeah. yeah. Well, we're going to want to talk about Louis van Gaal now, so we can oh, van Gaal. push it along. Um, yeah, van Gaal said, it, said a kind of strange thing. Van Gaal, obviously, um, Manchester United managed to win again. Uh, Jesse Lingard scored a nice goal. Louis van Gaal afterwards uh, was particularly delighted with the goal. 
because it was something that he told Lingard to do during the week. Score a goal. No, score this particular type of goal. Did you see? Did you not yeah, see no, that? Yeah, no, it's a great goal. Yeah. Oh, no, I didn't see the comments. Didn't see Van Hal's comments. Um, no, Van Hal said, "Oh, I'm particularly happy because Lingard had a couple of shots, and I said to him, uh, Jesse, you need to hit these shots with a bit more control. You have more feel for the ball. You can kind of place it in the corner. And today, that's what he did." It cut back to the match of the day studio where you've got Lineker, Shearer and Wright, all of whom had the same reaction to it, which was, isn't it wonderful when your manager <laughs> reveals that he's explained to you how to do your job and, in fact, takes credit for what you've just done. Uh, but it wasn't all just praise for Lingard from Van Hal. He also said um, that he's looking for uh, speed. Uh, he he needs speed on the wings, but as you can see, Lingard isn't the speediest, and uh, Mata is not is no is neither the speediest winger out there. So I don't know what that means. Don't. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Mata's been doing really well. Uh, Lingard, obviously, since he came into the team too, but maybe they need to uh, quicken their step. Somebody's been sacked at Chelsea, Ken. Big news. It's not Jose Mourinho though. It's a supporter. <laughs> oh, that's true. Owen. it is. It's a supporter. Well. The support. I'm sure a lot of people will have seen what he what he said because he was he was uh, in the sort of Andy Tate school of post match uh, football fan interviews, uh, but he turned out to be his his name turned out to be Clive O'Connell, and here's what he had to say. It's a long-term proposition who is the best manager in the world. Everybody knows that. Why do you think it is the Scouse scum weren't, were singing you're getting sacked in the morning? Not what we sang to Benitez. We want you to stay when Benitez was managing Liverpool. Because they know, even those scum Scouse idiots, those nasty, horrible people, know that Mourinho is the best manager in the world and he should stay here. All right. So that was him. Uh, obviously, his little clip attracted some interest from the internet. And then it turned out that he uh, worked for uh, a law firm called Goldberg Segala. Uh, and they weren't too happy with him. Well, here's their human resources guy speaking on the Internet today. The people who join Goldberg Segala not only need to be excellent at whatever it is they do, but they must be better human beings than they are lawyers. Our core values require that anyone affiliated with this firm demonstrate respect for the clients, respect, tolerance, Kindness, diversity, charity, they aren't mere words or amorphous concepts to us. We're true to those values. I love that guy. That guy is is the funniest thing of the... Of the He's explaining, YouTube. but he goes on to ex- explain that uh, our, our friend O'Connell didn't live up to these very noble aspirations of the company mm. and therefore he's better. gone. It's yeah. just what everybody wants really exactly. from a lawyer, isn't yeah. it? They they want to know a be- a, Are you a better human yeah, being? Yeah, A, are you a great human being? And then B, could you win the case that I've hired you for? <laughs> but mainly, are you a great human being? The, the guy, the second guy there is, it's uh, if if you try to write uh, well, if you try to draw sketch a person to deliver this and then write a script for it, yeah. you couldn't come up with better than this guy. So it's 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 worth a minute and fourteen seconds. I don't I don't know if I'm comfortable with the idea that these angry supporters are now starting to lose their actual real life jobs <laughs> yeah. based on their rantings. I, I don't know. know what Andy Tate works at, Ken, but it seems like his employer doesn't have any major issue with his various rantings. Hopefully, he doesn't lose his job. Well, you know, apparently, apparently, Mr. O'Connell had a had a bit of a history of kind of slightly weird comments about um, about Liverpool, um, various blog posts and whatnot that he said, and you know, he obviously has a bit of a a bit of a thing there. Yeah. At the same time, I don't know if. What do you think? Should he be sacked? I suppose it's a, the the thing is, what was he thinking saying all that stuff in the first place? Given he knows this is the type of firm he works for. Presumably, he got the memo about you have to be a better human being. And, and if he didn't get the memo, I'd say he has an idea that they like to mm. espouse these virtues. Yeah. So, but he he's drummed out his job anyway. Obviously, a, a bit different. Uh, a Goldberg Sagala uh, from Liverpool FC. Why is that? Well, just in terms of, I don't know how good Clive O'Connell was at his job. It says here in the Liverpool Echo that Mr. O'Connell was named Best Lawyer for Insurance Law and the 2014 Best Lawyers in the United Kingdom guy. Yeah, that's pretty good. Um, But I don't know still if that's quite as good as, if he's quite on a par in his profession with Luis Suarez in his profession. Um, You know, I, I don't know. I feel that if he was the Luis Suarez of insurance and reinsurance law, Goldberg Segala might have been inclined to take a more benign view of uh, of his little, you know, his problem, his internet problem. 
But I don't think he is. On, I don't think he is on that level. And therefore, he turns out to be uh, expendable. That's the end of Kennedy's report on sport. Hairdryers is a metaphor for the current of hot air generated by a furious blast of temper. The hairdryer with which uh, Alex Ferguson was famously associated. He threw a hairdryer, I think, at David Beckham. Oh, he threw a hairdryer at David Beckham. Uh, in the, is that right? No, 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 no. All right, Jonathan Wilson, we want to talk about uh, the Jose Mourinho less Chelsea, who still had a uh, result that was along the lines of the results that they've had with Mourinho present for the last, uh, for all the rest of the games this season. And this is ridiculous at this stage. 538, the American website, concentrate on the st- statistical side of things, have had a look at this. And apparently, it's the worst start that any defending champion has ever made. We're going back into the 1800s here. Their seventh defeat out of 12. Uh, Jose's absence from the touchline didn't seem to make any material difference. Um, well, I mean, not to the result. Clearly, it didn't. Uh, I, I think, I think they were a bit unlucky on Saturday. Um, yeah, they hit the post. They probably should have had that penalty. It wasn't like Stoke had a load of chances. Um, I mean, if, if you think of how, say, the Liverpool game went, that um, that seemed to, the Liverpool game seemed a familiar pattern. That they they took the lead, they sat back, the opposition sort of. Um, began to grow into the game and eventually sort of created a load of chances and won. I think I think Saturday was slightly different. It was a slightly freakish result, um, but but at the same time, it's a kind of result you suspect wouldn't have happened last season. It wouldn't happen with a confident side. Um, but it, maybe the I mean, every sort of talked about you know the, the speech John Terry gave before kickoff, and maybe that did have a galvanising effect. But I, I think there were. There were enough promising signs to, to keep Mourinho in the job for, for a little while longer, at least. John, talk to us a bit about that, because I don't really understand why Chelsea on this occasion are so resistant to sacking uh, the manager, given the trigger-happy history of the club and the fact that he currently has a worse record. I mean, if you look back at the past, say, half season's worth of games than any of the managers uh, who have been sacked by Chelsea, including himself. So what's keeping him in there this time? I think there's a number of things. I mean... I, I sort of find myself going against what I tend to think here. I, I kind of normally think we, we, we sack managers too quickly, that um, there was a value in giving managers time to, to, to work out what's gone wrong and to, and to sort it out, and, and that the, the, as, a, as a general culture, football is now too trigger-happy. But you, you, look at, you look at Chelsea, and I, I think you almost come to the conclusion that, that Mourinho, at the moment, is the biggest problem, that... His sort of the negativity that's swirling around him, you know, his, his allegations of, of paranoia, you know, his, his complaints about conspiracy against him and against the club, that they're sort of having a negative effect. There's, there's all kinds of rumours coming out of the dressing room that players sort of feel that way. I think you know, began back in well, January, February this year uh, when Diego Costa um, stamped on Emre Chan and got the three game ban, and Mourinho had that rant about Sky and showing the, the footage over and over again that. that Sort of what we've heard over the last month or two is the players felt that that was such an obvious case that Chelsea's had to go. Yeah, okay, he's done it. Three game ban, finally move on. And uh, they sort of they all, players almost felt a little bit silly, kind of having to go along with this this kind of complaint of conspiracy. And I think that's been compounded by the yeah, kind of issue and all, all the complaints this season about referees. So you sort of think, well, okay, Mourinho is the problem. And, and and so under those circumstances, yeah, even though he won the, the league in May, you do get rid of him. But I guess the things that that are that, that, that are the counterweight to that, um, it's partly. I mean, maybe Mourinho. We, we sort of thought he lost it a bit after that Southampton game when he gave that, um, you know, what was it, seven minute diatribe on Sky, saying he's the greatest manager they've ever had, and that, that the club had to be aware of its reputation that it couldn't sort of maintain this um, policy of, of sacking managers every time anything went wrong. And maybe he was right. Maybe that was actually quite a smart thing to do. That the, the club thought, yeah, you know, we are in danger of becoming this sort of laughing stock who, who sacks a manager every season. And if we even sack Mourinho, you know, the most successful manager in European football in the last decade, where do we go next? And of course, there's the huge danger that Mourinho leaves the club, goes somewhere else, and is immensely successful uh, because you know he always has been successful at clubs. So I think those two things uh, are probably pretty pretty strong in terms of keeping him there I think financially you know, there's a lot of talk at first he'd signed this four year contract that Chelsea really wanted to, to lose all that money and paying him off but it appears now to be you know, that they'd only have to pay him off for one year it's nine and a half million pounds which you know, it's not nothing but it's certainly affordable for Chelsea 
Um, but I, I think the other sense is that this is a squad that, that is in transition, that, that, that there's several uh, key leaders have, have left or are in the process of leaving, with people like Drogba and Czech and, and, and Lampard going, Terry clearly coming towards the end. That a new manager coming in would have poorer resources than, than perhaps any previous Chelsea manager in the last decade, that it, it, it needs rebuilding. And then maybe alongside that, there's, a, there's an acceptance at the club that, that they did get the transfer policy wrong in the summer, that when Mourinho complains about people not doing their jobs, not taking responsibility, not sort of following the list he drew up for them, I think at the end of April he said he drew it up, that, that maybe he does have a point and they, they needed greater investment. I would honestly be amazed if uh, Roman Abramovich agreed that, with that view. I would be amazed, just because... He, I remember one of the, remember when uh, Mourinho Benitez in his in Mourinho's first spell at Stamford Bridge, uh, himself and Rafael Benitez would have this thing where they were kind of insulting each other and so on, and usually Mourinho had all the best lines, but Rafael Benitez did have one I thought very telling line, which was they were kind of inviting him to pay tribute to the wonderful job that Jose Mourinho had done, and he said I think the owner's done a great job. And it really annoyed uh, Mourinho that he would say that. But the, um, the implication was clear. The reason Chelsea win trophies is because Roman Abramovich has provided all this money. And if you look at, say, for instance, um, <clears throat> if you compare... Uh, I mean, the point that you were making is Chelsea might be worried that they would get this reputation. Mourinho was saying, oh, this, this is just the madhouse club that sacks its manager all the time. So what? They've sacked the manager uh, on a consistent basis uh, every time things have, have gone bad over the last few years. And they're record of success stands comparison with any club in Europe with the with possibly the exception of Barcelona although mostly it's Mourinho's been winning them the league titles well, no, they've only won Mar- was, Mar- was Mar- one Mar- league Mar- title has, without Mourinho has it's true been in charge for three of those league titles but he has been the manager for longer uh, time than any of those but he didn't win the Champions League or the Europa League I mean I think it was uh, Martin Samuel some time ago uh, wrote a big uh, you know wrote, wrote a piece sort of talking about well we talk about stability uh, and the manager uh, as you know, the stability of the manager and, and giving managers patience being so important, and then compared, say, the record of of Manchester United with Real Madrid and with Chelsea since Abramovich arrived, and you know there wasn't there wasn't really much of a difference. So what I'm saying is, Abramovich could sack Mourinho, get someone else in, and um, have no reason really to expect things are going to get any worse. I'm not sure about that. I mean, I think the fact that they've only won one title without Mourinho, I, I think that weighs pretty heavy. Um, I, I think that's, that has a, to do with the fact that fear there that, that nobody else can do it. Um, and I, I also get the impression that well, I mean, what would they have done if Mourinho hadn't agreed to come back? Who would they have turned to then? They're running out of candidates. So you, you say, so what if they have this reputation as a firing club? Well, yeah, up to a point, fair enough. But there's not that many managers at that elite level who are sort of pretty proven, who you can sort of think, yeah, he'll, he'll definitely do well. Uh, I mean, the, 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 the talk now seems to be that Diego Simeone will be the first choice. But Simeone's record, you're brilliant at Atletico Madrid, in very different circumstances to those he tried at Chelsea. But his record before that, you know, his record in Argentina is slightly patchy. You know? I mean, he, he himself has talked about the, the, the sense of responsibility he feels for River Plate's relegation. If the only rele- relegation in, in the history of the biggest team in Argentinian football... And it, you know, the, the, the bad one of form, of course, that started on his watch. So, you know, Mourinho is, is as close to a guarantee as you're going to find. The problem is that he's also as close to a guarantee of things going wrong in the third season as you're going to find. Yeah. So I, I can understand why there's almost this sort of talismanic faith in Mourinho and this, this sort of fear of letting him go again. I, um, I, I maybe, maybe Carlo Ancelotti would come back, but I, I don't know. I mean, you know, he, he's... Um, He's got no real need to put himself through that again. Well, apart from the fact that all that ham he likes to eat is extremely <laughs> expensive, you know, and working for Chelsea has been a profitable uh, business for him. Like, I mean, when I think Mourinho, when he when he says, uh, you know, I'm the best manager ever, he's almost, why should a club like Chelsea, who are really rich, and, you know, that given that that's, you know, 85, 90% of the battle in football, being being rich enough to sort of compete at the top level. Um, why should they be enthralled to the cult of the manager? I mean, it suits Jose Mourinho to propagate that uh, idea, uh, to say that he's the top man of a tiny group of people who have the capacity to run the club. But does anyone seriously believe that? There must be, you know, there must be 100 coaches in Europe who could do 
uh, who could take the Chelsea job and do well if only Chelsea were prepared to trust them. But rather they're, you know, they're like, oh no, it has to be a Mourinho or an Ancelotti or, you know, one of these kind of, um, there really is only a tiny group of those guys. I don't understand why Chelsea should box themselves into into thinking that way when they could, you know, they could hire, I mean, what if Chelsea were to go to go and hire Roger Schmidt from uh, Leverkusen? I mean, people, you know, might say, oh, who's Roger Schmidt? But, you know, that doesn't mean that Roger Schmidt would do a bad job. It doesn't mean he would do a bad job. It doesn't mean he'd do a good job either. You know, bringing in a manager with with no Premier League experience, who who's never won a European trophy, that, you know, that that's a gamble. I mean, one of the I, I I still find one of the bizarre stats in football is that only four managers have ever won the English League title with two different clubs. Um, now that that suggests to me that the success of a manager is you know, managers successful over a very brief period of time. In very specific circumstances, and it's very, very hard to replicate that. Uh, you know, Kenny Dalglish is, is, is the last one, and, and the reason he was able to do it was because Blackburn had a, an amount of money that was pretty much unprecedented in English football. Before that, you're talking about Clough, who was a you know a, a, a once in a several generation genius, or, or was at that, at, that, at that time in the 70s. But you know, even he struggled to replicate that. In the you've, 80s. Got, you've also got um, Kenny Dalglish, who won because he joined a club that had all the money in the world and. You know the, the the Chelsea of his of his day. I mean, nobody would say it was because Dalglish had had a you know was it was some kind of genius at management, but you know he he went to Blackburn. They spend a ton of money, and suddenly he's beating Manchester United to win the league title. At a time when very few clubs had that sort of, those kind of resources. I mean, I think that's one of the things that one of the problems Chelsea have. Is that other clubs have become have begun to catch them up financially? That the 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 the, the, uh, the new TV deal slightly levels the playing field. I think you know. I, I was looking at this this morning. There's um, six points separate the top seven in, in in the Premier League. Now after 12 games, that hasn't been the case since 1999. And I think one of the reasons for that is that you know, ha- having had a, a spell of 15 years when the, the richest clubs were pulling away, the middle class has started to catch up. The the the, the environment's changing. And, and Chelsea are not what they were in you know, 2004, 2005, by far the richest club. They're now sort of competing with United City, even Arsenal. I mean, Arsenal bring in £2 million more per game in, in, in gate receipts than Chelsea do. That, that's, that, that financial dynamic has changed. And, and I think maybe that's affecting Chelsea's confidence as well. They've recognised they're, they're not the one superpower anymore. Mm. Well, there is another option available to Chelsea, uh, which is... You know, if if someone like Roger Schmidt doesn't have the credibility to come in and and take over a dressing room full of lions like uh, the Chelsea dressing room, what about turning to the uh, the biggest and craggiest and snarliest lion in that dressing room? I mean, you mentioned the motivational uh, speech that John Terry gave during the week. Uh, He is somebody who would command uh, instant respect from the stadium. He knows the game in a way that only those who have played at the very top level of the game can ever hope to know the game. Uh, it seems to me as though the answer could be staring Chelsea in the face with a very, with a flinty a flinty eyed yeah. stare. If, if only John Terry had coaching badges. It, Has he not done well, any we badges? Got pieces of paper, <clears throat> pieces of paper stand in the, between John Terry and Destiny. He actually doesn't have coaching. But you're telling me John Terry is just not qualified to do this job. I'm well. I'm pretty sure he doesn't have an A license. He, he may have other coaching badges. Uh, well, there, there was that one. Yeah, was it against Benfica when uh, when he was suspended and he, he sort of was it under Di Matteo? It was definitely a game when Terry was clearly playing at being the manager, oh, yeah. um, <laughs> and he sort of came to the front of a dugout and was sort of waving his arms around. I mean, he's got the gestures. He's definitely got that, even if he hasn't got the badges. Uh, so, so we're saying, unfortunately, we can't even. It's a uh, no to John Terry. Say, we're John. saying just be, we're hiding behind this this quelf, this bureaucracy. Uh, I mean, do you do you think that it, say, for instance, they could fast track him? Uh, to get those UEFA, uh, he could do uh, he could do his coaching badge. I don't know, maybe come to Ireland and, and do them quickly over here. Um, are we saying that he would be an unsuitable candidate for the job? I, I'd be fascinated to see it. I think it'd be an enormous gamble. Um, I, I'd very much enjoy seeing it. I mean, to be honest, I, I'm very much looking forward to the prospect of seeing Mourinho in the Europa League. Yeah, after he's so dismissive of Benitez winning it, it's sort of almost it was an insult to Chelsea for him to be in the Europa League. To see Mourinho forced to take the competition seriously, you know, needing, needing to win the Europa League final to keep his job at the end of the season, I think that would be uh, that would be tremendous to see. But um, I don't know. Would would Terry be a good coach? It's 
I've never heard him talk in any interview about tactics. I've never heard him express any vision of the game. Well, that's where an, a, a, an able deputy comes in, someone like Robbie Savage. You know, <laughs> as, uh, Robbie Savage knows tactics. He talks about football on a regular basis. Uh, Jonathan, this is getting too ridiculous. We're going to have to let you go here. Ken's dream of John Terry taking over Chelsea. It's not going to happen. Thanks a million. Yeah, thanks. It's just not happening for you again. JT, you're JT for manager calls. They're just not happening. By the way, you've got a... I didn't realise you admired Roger Schmidt so much. You've got a another Roger Schmidt fan who you're going to meet on Wednesday night, in fact. Who's that? Jim McGuinness. We're interviewing Jim McGuinness. Oh, on he's, a Roger, on, on he's a Roger Schmidt fan? Yeah, I've been doing a lot of research on McGuinness over the last few days, ahead of chatting to him for the last TV show of the series. And I think it was an off-the-ball interview. He was talking about his role at Celtic and his the kind of study that he does outside of... So he talks to all the coaches at Celtic and he's getting heavily involved, obviously, in, in, in all of that. But then he goes away and in typical Jim McGuinness fashion reads about a million books every weekend about football in general and he studies other teams. I mean, he was asked, oh, well, what teams in particular, what managers? He mentioned Diego Simeone, but he mentioned Roger Schmidt as well at Leverkusen. Yeah, yeah um, now he's one of those, uh, those little um, brat pack of German managers' own. Uh, Jurgen Klopp is almost a grandfatherly figure in that crew. They're like, oh, here's Klopp talking, talking. Oh man, Klopp. Like, oh man, Klopp. Yeah. So <clears throat> Klopp, Sinatra, and Roger Schmidt is the the guy who married JFK's sister. I don't know. I honestly don't know enough about Peter. Them. Peter Love. <laughs> Sammy Davis Jr. He was in it. No, Sammy Davis Jr. didn't marry JFK's sister, but I think he was, it, he was a member of the group. Yeah, Peter Lawford, I think, and of course Dean Martin, Dino. So Dino. Well, you know, Schmidt is. Uh, is uh, very highly rated. Anyway, like him and Thomas Tuchel and all these kind of guys, uh, they're hip, hip young managers. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if John Terry would have much truck with them. Uh. Yeah, well, he's probably not having much truck with Jose at the moment. But we've got to talk about Mourinho's former club, uh, Real Madrid. Kieran Canning is based there, is ready to go. Kieran, this well, just we've been chatting already about the Cristiano Ronaldo movie. That's out today. I'm sure you would have liked to launch the movie on the back of a better result. Incredible game against Sevilla, though. A 3-2 defeat. What happened to Real? Yeah, it was a bit of a, a, a symptom of a lot of games that they've had this season, um, which makes you really you know, question their, their fitness. And they played quite well in the first half and in many games last night. Um, as another example of that, at least in the, the first half hour, we're 1-0 up. Um, probably should have put the game to bed. That was one of the things that that Rafael Benitez complained about after the game that they didn't kill the game off. Um, Sevilla equalised about 10 minutes before half-time and then in the second half were by far the better team. Um, as regards Ronaldo individually, just he doesn't look like the guy that we've seen dominate you know, world football, not just Spanish football, in the past number of years at the moment. He's having to play up front um, more as a number nine because of uh, Benzema's absence through injury, although there's got other issues on at the moment as well. Um, and yeah, he doesn't, doesn't look comfortable. Um, he seems to be anxious on, on the field a lot of the time as well. You see, and he's, you, know, you know when things aren't going Ronaldo's way, you know, he's not sh- uh, slow in showing it to the cameras. Um, and it's interesting that with, with the movie and all, and all the, the press he's been doing outside of Spain, he's actually started to get some, some criticism within Spain because they're not liking the fact that He's uh, he doesn't speak to the Spanish media yet. Has has gone to to England and there's been interviews in Germany and, and other places in America um, to try and promote the movie. And the fact that he's um, he had some contact last week in the PSG game when he spoke to to Lauren Blanc coming off the field. He then um, had a, a coming together with the uh, the PSG owner. Um, where they sort of had a bit of a hug and a, a talk to each other, and that was so blown up as it always is in Spain. Is he looking to to move on from from Real Madrid? So not the best time for for Ronaldo or Real Madrid generally at the moment. Yeah, but Ronaldo knows what he's doing when he does those sorts of things. I mean, I wonder. I mean, say say for instance, you know, hanging out with the owner of PSG or whatever. I, I can't imagine that Ronaldo is doing that on a spontaneous basis. I mean, Real Madrid know what they're dealing with here. I mean, it's not as though it's like a, a you know, Ronaldo works pretty closely uh, with George Mendes, uh, and if he's doing things like that, then he's probably he's probably doing it for a reason. Exactly, but I think that's that's why he's starting to get some some criticism from the media here because they know that it's all orchestrated. You know, that the the speaking to to Blanc as they come off comes off the field as well. He knows that that's going to be caught in camera, um, and 
you know, there's been rumours circulating Ronaldo for a while now, and a lot of it has to do um, with his. We always talk about how, how great uh, condition, what great condition Ronaldo's in, but at the moment he just doesn't seem physically right. You know, there's a lot of um, talk at the moment. When was the last time everyone saw Ronaldo run past the man? You know, beat a man one on one. He's more and more, even last season when he was still in theory playing from the left hand side, sort of morphing into this big number nine, you know, big centre forward that um, you know scores a lot of goals from inside the six yard box with one touch finishes, with headers, you know, with with balls that ricochet around the edge of the area, rather than you know, especially the Ronaldo we saw come through at Man United with his electric pace and, and dribbling past players. So there, there is possibly the option next um, next summer if things continue to go in, in the way they are at the moment, um, of both sides looking for some sort of exit strategy from Real Madrid. I mean, that's why, just what you've been saying, Ecker, makes, I mean, you, you mentioned earlier that uh, he doesn't really look comfortable playing as a number nine, but it appears to me that that's really all he's fit to do these days. I don't really understand um, why he would be uncomfortable playing the position that his current physique and, and level of fitness actually uh, best equips him to play. I think the the key point in that is the fact that Benzema isn't there at the moment. So whilst Benzema is there, he's the perfect player to play with Ronaldo because of the way that he attracts the defence and pulls defenders out of position, which then means that Ronaldo is, in theory, coming in from the left-hand side into the into the centre of the area. There's space to take advantage of because Benzema's created that space. And at the moment, because he's playing up there on his own, he's the focal point for the defence and it's much easier for them to mark him and he's having to play a lot more with his back to goal rather than Benzema doing that job and then Ronaldo coming in and sort of late arriving and, and finishing off the, the chances that are created by, by Benzema. Yeah, the issues Benzema is facing off the field, and this, this incredible story that we only really touched on last week uh, about his alleged role in a, in a blackmail plot against his teammate, Matthew Valbuena, uh, surrounding a, a sex tape of uh, featuring Valbuena. What's the latest on the... It's, it's crazy stuff. What's the latest on that? Over the weekend, um, Madrid have made it very clear that they're standing behind him, um, that they'll, they'll support him. There was even a suggestion... Uh, on Friday that he could have played some part in the game last night. Benitez said on Saturday that he, he wasn't going to call him up to the squad, but that was more a fitness issue than you know the issues um, off the field. He hadn't played for a month, and I think you know coming towards the end of his recovery, spending a night in custody probably wasn't the best thing for a, a professional footballer. So what I think is going to be very interesting in the next couple of weeks, I don't expect that there'll be any developments in the, the investigation before the, the classical in two weeks time and there's never more scrutiny on you know footballers than before a, a classical and that's going to be his, his next game it's going to be the first game that he's played in the best part of six weeks so both physically and mentally um, it's going to be very interesting to see how he reacts the other big story in Spain is David Moyes, who, as we as we record, we're just waiting for the end to fall, for the axe to fall here, Kieran. It hasn't worked out for him at all at Real Sociedad. No, he was hired 364 days ago, you know, almost, <laughs> the, almost the years of the day. Um, but when he was hired, Sociedad had nine points from 11 games. And after losing to Las Palmas this weekend, they have nine points from 11 games. Right. So you can, you can say that he's, he's left them as he arrived. Um, it's not worked out at all. There was... Some signs of improvement towards um, the end of last season. Obviously, the the victory over Barcelona in January was the high point. Um, but in terms of resources um, and the size of the club, Sostad, without doubt, should be in the top half of the table. Obviously, they're, they're not going to compete with Barcelona Madrid. They probably, Jewish resources, couldn't even compete with the likes of Atletico, Valencia and, and Sevilla. But then that tier below, below that sort of level, level of club um, and for them to be standing at the moment um, just out of the relegation zone on goal difference really isn't acceptable the first part of this season the first three or four games they really struggled to score goals and it just seems as if Moyes hasn't really despite what he said when he first arrived embraced the, the Spanish experience he hasn't learned the language um, he constantly complains about the fact that the refereeing is, is different in Spain than it is to England but that's that should be something that's obvious and that you have to kind of accept and, and move on from um, but it doesn't seem to be as if he's um, he's done that Yeah, I mean Moyes always he kind of struck struck you always as, as potentially a real fish out of water in, in Spain you know, having to 
just something about him. He's not maybe the kind of person who who naturally would plunge into trying to speak a foreign language in public with all the horrible, embarrassing mistakes that are inevitably going to follow. Like Moyes was always a little bit, you know, his efforts to speak Spanish were funny, even to non, non-Spanish speakers, uh, I think. But I wondered if you got the impression from, from his time in Spain that he has, uh, he's maybe been damaged a little bit by the, by the whole nightmare that he went through at Manchester United, that maybe he's lost some kind of confidence in his ability um, maybe he needs a more familiar environment if he's going to get back to being the David Moyes that people remember from Everton. Possibly, I mean, certainly from what I saw of Moyes' Everton as well, I think that, and this is you know, interesting, so something that um, Klopp, I think, said before he went to Liverpool that the only place he could work outside of Germany was England because he, he had the language and he needed to communicate with his players to get his message across. and. I got that feeling with Moyes as well that he's quite you know his, his one of his major assets was his motivation more than say a, a great tactical nous and you know, that must be very difficult if he's tra- having to go through translators um, all the time. Whether he's been scarred, I think almost um, when you see what he says in the press conference, he's almost too acutely aware of his own players' feelings. He's almost looking as if. He's constantly looking for things that could go wrong or will go wrong, um, rather than trying to be positive. And that's why, for the, the large majority of his stay in Sochdad, despite having some very good attacking players, have been quite a negative side that you know is, is concentrating more on trying to clean, keep a clean sheet and not lose the game, rather than trying to go and win the game, even against teams that are in theory inferior to them. And I wonder if that's possibly. Um, Something that's come, that's come about from his from his Manchester United time. Although, if you speak to Everton fans, they'll say that quite often they could be quite negative during uh, Moise's time there as well. Okay, well, Kieran, great stuff. Thanks a million. No problem. Thanks for having me on. Oh, poor old Cristiano Ronaldo. He's just doing a few publicity interviews, a few promotional interviews for the movie around the world. Yeah. And the journos in Spain don't like the fact that he's thrown out these one-on-ones elsewhere when he's maybe reluctant to talk to them sometimes. Just that idea of uh, also him getting criticised for hanging out with the or being a little bit overly friendly with the Paris Saint-Germain hierarchy mm. reminded me of the Brian O'Driscoll incident a number of years back when he was one of the best players in the world, obviously, and was being courted. Well, actually, he just wanted to sign a big, fat new contract with Leinster and Ireland. Uh, but he was being courted by, was it Biarritz? Biarritz, I think it was at the time, and he went over, anyway, was brought over to the club uh, to watch a game. So he thought, that's grand, I'll go over, maybe there might be a photo of a bit of news might leak back to Leinster and to Ireland and that might expedite the process somewhat. What he didn't expect was that he was going to be the centre point of this pre-match function, brought up on stage, paraded around that, brought onto the pitch. Uh, He was actually asked to put on a Biarritz jersey by the owner (laughs) and walk around the pitch. Now, he didn't wear the jersey, but I'm pretty sure there were photos snapped of him with the owner actually at the stadium. And everyone's like, that's pretty brazen. Come on, that's a bit unsubtle. And uh, his plan had been to be a tiny bit more subtle than that. But uh, I think the IRFU got the message anyway and signed him up. Yeah, I mean, uh, Ronaldo... Ronaldo would not have done that if, if it hadn't been mapped out in advance for him, I don't think. that That's certainly the impression that you get from reading about him. Like, I mean, the influence of Mendes on his life is is interesting. Like, the he, he initially became his agent when, I think, Ronaldo was 17, went for dinner with Ronaldo and the mother, with, with another guy who he got to talk to Ronaldo while he charmed the mother. Uh, soon after that, they were able to send a fax to Ronaldo's then agent saying, sorry, but you don't love the boy enough. You haven't done enough for the boy. Uh, I'm going to be taken over from now on, uh, Mr. Mendes. And that's the way it's gone. I mean, it's, I don't know. I think he's, a, he's been a big influence and not necessarily a good one on Ronaldo's career. He has made him a lot of money, obviously. I mean, we were talking earlier about, you know, Karen, we were saying if he, uh, you know, I was saying it's kind of a pity, I think he couldn't stay at Man United, which just seemed mm. a more stable, more less wearing environment for him. But the thing is that he always probably would have been pining for this. You know, if he hadn't gone, this it would have gnawed at him this sense of, oh, I wanted to go there and, you know, be a, kind of this big star. Um, and I guess the, it was always, whatever way he did, he was always going to end up being, maybe he was going to end up being unhappy. Because if you define your happiness by, am I going to win more, am I going to win more Ballon d'Ors than Neil Messi? And the answer is you will not, you will not achieve happiness. I think Mendes has done all right by him. Getting, he's got him two moves. He's one done, to, Manche- one to Manchester him, United, and then the other to the only, probably the only club aside from Manchester United who Ronaldo would have fancied moving to, and that was Real Madrid. Mm. 
Pretty, think, yeah. yeah, I'm pretty sure Mendes has done all right out of it too. Yeah, Mendes has done, so it's done great out of it. But Mendes' main problem with, with Ronaldo, it seems, is trying to keep all his other clients happy oh, yeah. because he 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 loves Ronaldo so much. He devotes so much time to Ronaldo and like making sure that Ronaldo, like glamouring Ronaldo all the time, you know, mm. making Ronaldo feel like the most loved person ever all the time. That sometimes some of his other clients, like Jose Mourinho, say, start to get a bit jealous. Hey, you know, why don't you love me no more, George? And Mendes is kind of like, you know. I'm just one man. <laughs> I've only got a certain amount of love to give. You know, I mean, let's just say on the days when George Mendes used to go and eat lunch every single day with George Andrade, the the rugged, <laughs> rugged defender of, was it Porto or Deportivo de Corina? Those days, those days on are gone. George Andrade is buying a lot of his old lunches. <laughs> We're going to wrap things up and get recording our second podcast of the day. If you want to rate either of them or comment on them on iTunes, please leave that. Make sure to leave a comment, leave a rating, and make sure you are fully subscribed. Thanks very much for listening to this one. Thanks, Ken. Thank you, Owen. Thanks very much. Thank you, Owen. Thank you, Kenny. Thank you, Kurt. Our next football podcast will be uh, later in the week. It'll be a massive preview of Ireland-Bosnia, which we haven't talked about today. We're going to save our ammunition on that one until Thursday, so we'll chat to you then. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home.